Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 703 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 16th of July 2023 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Rachel Heron, a friend of mine of many years now, so we have a great chat. Many of you will know Rachel from her podcast How Do You Write or her older podcast with Jay Thorne, The Writer's Well. We talk about publishing options, since Rachel has just sold her latest novel to a big traditional publisher, but she's also indie with other books, she's got her rights back on some older books, is planning a Kickstarter, and has a Patreon for essays. She uses pretty much every single publishing route, so we talk about that and more, coming up in the interview section. So in publishing and book marketing news, well, not very much, to be honest. (laughs) And of course, while there are lots of legal challenges going on in the AI space, development continues apace. So I'm going to talk about a couple of different things, some useful things and my personal update. So firstly, some useful things. So I've been in the editing process for Catacomb, which is a standalone horror monster book coming soon. And my editor, Kristen Tate, recommended powerthesaurus.org for enhanced word choice. Now, I always edit with a thesaurus open, but usually just thesaurus.com. I usually just use that. And I love finding different words. But powerthesaurus.org is interesting too, and it's slightly different in the way that it does things. So I thought I'd pass that on. We are word people after all, and we love finding different words. And remember, if you're editing and you're going to have an audio book, it's also about repeated sounds, not just repeated words. And uh, that's definitely something to think about in your editing process. I've talked about that before in previous shows and also in my book, Audio for Authors. But yes, editing for audio means uh, finding even more different words. Also useful, Christine Catherine Rush has a new book out, How Writers Fail, which as ever is in Chris's no-nonsense style and goes into attitude, fear, expectations, money, words, competition, blame, success, and much more. One of the chapters is, yeah, I already know that. which I think is such a great title for a chapter. And it's about stretching and pushing ourselves and not just relying on doing things the same way we always have in our writing craft, but also in our writing business. We have to keep learning, no matter how long we have been doing this. And I feel like this is a danger for people like me who've been doing this. Uh, I've been in this nearly 15 years now. And it is a danger to think, yeah, I already know that. Because things just keep changing and we have to keep learning. And in the current environment, with the rise of AI in every domain, this is more important than ever. 
And I did want to comment on this because there are loads of legal cases and people keep sending me them and I'm like, yeah, I am aware of all the legal stuff going on and all the drama online and off in social media, not just for writers. But remember, in fact, I really think this is the very least. (laughs) I mean, in businesses and education and science and government, these are very big topics that are being discussed at the highest level in the world. And I've been thinking a lot about the Antonio Gramsci quote, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. It's a great quote. (laughs) You can look that up. I'll uh, link to it in the show notes. But yeah, it was from a political time in history. But we we are still living in a political type history. I mean, that's just normal life. (laughs) But this too shall pass and we will move into whatever the new normal turns out to be. But for now, it's pretty exhausting. So take breaks. And I'm saying that to myself (laughs) since I actually spent the whole of yesterday in bed, just exhausted, binge watching Grey's Anatomy, if you want to know. (laughs) And I think I've actually spent more random days in bed than I used to before I had COVID. Um, whatever the reason, maybe it's just middle age, maybe it's just things getting on top of one. But we all need time out. And I wanted to remind you to take time away from social media and email, stop watching the news. Uh, I haven't watched the news for many, many years, probably over a decade now since I watched any news, but I do read the news. And uh, I try and take a break from that too. And of course, being away from people. If you're an introvert like me, I think partly why I'm so tired is last weekend, we had a bit of a peopling weekend, (laughs) which is super tiring. So yes, look after yourself. Now talking of monsters, I'm in Finishing Energy for Catacomb, which, as I mentioned, is a monster book. And also in Finishing Energy for my new Shopify store, jfpenbooks.com. I'm just trying to sort out a last few things on that. Now, I'm also so tired because finishing energy is tough. And I wanted to talk about this too, because I feel like people forget about finishing energy. And I've talked about this before. It's in several of my books, uh, but there's starting energy and you're like, wow, this is amazing. I love this book. I'm so in love with my ideas. Oh, it's just flowing. It's amazing. Or whatever the project is, there's the starting energy, which gets you going. Then there's the pushing through energy, which is the big bulk of the work when you actually have to do the work. And if you have finished books, then you know that pushing through energy is important. I also wrote about this in Pilgrimage because these same things happen on any kind of journey. So yes, pushing through energy is like, ah, brilliant, I've finished. But finishing energy for a book is all the last things you need to do to get that into the world. So I wanted uh, to just reflect upon this for a minute. So for an indie author, it's proofreading. It's um, And in fact, for traditionally published authors, it's also proofreading. But then the final final changes, the formatting, publishing the pre-order, getting the arcs out, working with your book designer to do uh, the print version. Maybe you're doing an audiobook version. It's thinking about launch and marketing plan, you know, doing your ads, doing your email sequences, setting up things like Shopify, if that's how you sell stuff, and all these fiddly things which feel like they have nothing to do with the creativity of the book. And yeah, it's funny because I, back in my old life, I was an IT consultant and I used to implement SAP financials, which is in financial systems into, into companies. And this was exactly 
the last moments before go live it used to be called go live and so for my new store for jfpenbooks.com i'm currently having a bit of a nightmare and in fact if anyone knows how to help me with this please let me know <laughs> but basically i'm i'm trying to because i have two stores i'm going to have two stores my creativepenbooks.com for my non-fiction and jfpenbooks.com but because i linked creative pen books to all my facebook stuff and my instagram i now can't seem to un- disconnect it and reconnect it so I'm having some pain there (laughs) so I think that finishing energy becomes painful at points and you're like oh I just want to stop doing this also if you've set a deadline then you know that you have to get it done by a certain time uh yeah so basically it's all the fiddly things which are frankly a pain in the neck (laughs) it's but it is what you need to turn your initial idea into a finished project and turn its potential into money and reviews and happy readers. And without finishing energy, you all you have is an unfinished project that is not out in the world. Like if I don't push through and do all of this stuff, I will not have Catacomb available. I will not have another fiction Shopify store that I absolutely love. I really love loving the way I can build this store. I just feel I know I'm going to be really happy when it's done, but (laughs) these last bits are just painful. So if you are in finishing energy, then I totally understand how you're feeling. And to me, it is a case of just having a big checklist and going through all the things I need to do and it always takes longer than you expect. It's like, you know, when you see those DIY programs and people are like, yeah, well, it's going to cost this much and it's going to come in on time. And you're like, no, it's not. (laughs) You just know it's not. But I did want to mention uh, in terms of Shopify, very exciting. They have just announced Sidekick, which is coming soon and it will be sort of an AI assistant to help build your store, do analytics and all that helpful stuff. I'll link to the founder's uh, tweet in the show notes, but it's going to be, I'm so excited about that and that might help with all the little things. The other thing that helps with finishing energy is that I have done this many times before and I think about it as a wheel and the wheel turns and very soon I'll be back in the starting energy again and I just know that that's how the creative wheel works and when the wheel turns hopefully in the next couple of weeks I've kind of earmarked August to get back into that new new book energy or that that sort of more exciting energy my next project will be the long-awaited shadow book which is about writing from your darker side and I would like your help to make it the most useful book because I'm writing this to help you also to help me because I feel like this is a book I've kind of been working on for 25 years since I studied Jungian psychology back in the 90s at Oxford. (laughs) So I have a survey with some pretty open questions and if you're interested in the shadow book please would you do the survey at jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey because this is going to be a jfpen book so jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey links in the show notes i would love for you to do that as soon as you can but certainly before the end of august 2023 depending on when you're listening to this 
say thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Thanks to Debbie for the nice smiley picture from the car. She says, listening to your podcast while driving on my job and learning from you how to become a full-time writer. My first book is due out in August. Congratulations, Debbie. Also on YouTube, Omega 9 2647 says on the AI disruption episode with Nick Thacker. Wow, I just love this episode. I have to admit I was a bit sceptic going in. Mainly I thought it was going to stress me. I am all for AI as a tool, but I'm trying to stay away from the doom and gloom stories. But you and Nick put such a positive and lovely spin on it. Thank you. Yes, Omega 9, we're not doom and gloom on this podcast. We are... um, I, yes, I'm an optimist. I'm a techno-optimist. Proud to say it. <laughs> also, Richard E.T. James said on the interview with John Gaspard, So great to hear the perspective from the movie and TV world. Seems such a divide normally with the world of writing. And what a really nice guy he was. A pleasure to listen to you both. Thank you. And remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or thread me at JF Pen Author. <laughs> Send me pictures of where you're listening or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, because however you choose to publish, whether you go direct to readers or you go indie or you want a traditional deal, you need to make your book the best it can be. I use Pro Writing Aid multiple times in my creative process. Once after the full draft is finished, before I print it for hand edits, then again before I send it to my editor. And if it's a short story or something, I will use it again before publishing as a final check. It's one of my absolute must-use tools in my writing process. So why use software to help? Why don't you just learn all the grammar and writing rules and apply them yourself? Well, we all use tools to improve our process, and we are also often blind to our writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. ProWritingAid knows all the rules and helps you apply them. And of course, you can choose not to make the changes as you like. It helps with making your writing more active, finding repeated words, finding words you could improve, sentence structure, grammar and punctuation issues, as well as typos, spacing problems and more. It integrates with all the usual word processing tools, and importantly for many of us, it integrates with Scrivener, which is how I use it. I learn something every time, and ProWritingAid has loads of reports to help improve your writing in multiple ways. So won't your human editor do all this? Well, yes, they can, but I'd rather pay my editor to fix the things that software can't. As brilliant as ProWritingAid is, it cannot read your manuscript as a whole, comment on the bigger issues like character development or inconsistencies or plot holes or structure for nonfiction. So I use ProWritingAid as my essential editing tool before sending to my human editor, Kristen. You can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time is sponsored by my patrons and especially the in between episodes on AI and other future topics. I'm especially grateful to those patrons who've been supporting this show for years and months. You are fantastic. And thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Chelsea Hamilton, Josh Gentry, Moose and Samantha Reynolds. 
And remember, if you support the show on Patreon, you get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, which I should be recording this week. (laughs) It's around 40 to 45 minutes of audio where I answer questions about writing craft, business, publishing, book marketing, making money with your writing and, of course, AI. You can support the show with a few dollars or euros or pounds or many other currencies and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A plus the backlist. So lots more audio. You can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. And remember, you can go in and out of support over time as well. It's not like you have to support forever. Right, let's get into the interview. Rachel Heron is the internationally best-selling author of more than two dozen books, including thrillers, romance, memoir, and non-fiction about writing. She has taught writing at both UC Berkeley and Stanford, and now teaches authors online with courses and coaching, as well as through her podcast, How Do You Write? So welcome back to the show, Rachel. What a treat to talk to you, Joe. It's just a delight as always. <laughs> now, you were last on the show in 2018 talking about Fast Draft, your memoir. Now, obviously, lots has happened since then, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. So give us a bit of an update on what your author life and your business look like now. Okay. So first of all, five years. Oh, my God. And second of all, when Fast Draft, your memoir came out, I have not listened to that episode since we recorded it. But I remember you saying... I'm going to write a memoir and I'm not ready to do it yet. I'm not ready. <laughs> and look at you now. So oh, let's yes, see, well, for, let's for see people how... who don't know, my memoir Pilgrimage came out earlier this year in 2023. So I definitely had your book but it's there. so good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely. It's lovely. So yes, yeah, so, so that had just come out the last time we chatted. And since then, I, I was thinking about this because five years is a long time, especially in the last, you know, the last five years. So since then, I have published two thrillers. One was called Stolen Things and one was called Hush Little Baby. Both of those were from Penguin. I got the rights back to, I think I counted, I think it was, it's a total of eight books. So seven novels and my first memoir, A Life in Stitches, I got the rights to all of those back and those have been subsequently self-published and depublished by me. I just sold a new book, which I was talking to you about recently. So that is actually going to be my new genre of paranormal women's fiction. So that's out there. And we've, my wife and I have moved to New Zealand. So it's been a busy five years. (laughs) It has. It has. Absolutely. We're (laughs) going to come back on the New Zealand thing. But I mean, obviously there you've got traditional publishing, you've got rights back, you indie publish, you do all these different things. And I wanted to talk to you because you've got this new course out, how to publish your book in today's market, which I think is super useful because it seems like there are more choices than ever. And also a lot of people like yourself, you're mixing and matching all these things. So talk a bit more about like how do you combine traditional and indie publishing, both practically and also the mindset, I think, and how do you know what to do with each project? Oh, it's such a good question. So I wrote the book that just sold. It's gonna, it's not coming out till 2025. Thank you, traditional publishing. But that is the paranormal women's fiction. And I wrote it with the entire intention, a hundred percent intention to self-publish this as the beginning of a series. I 
had the idea. I was in love with this idea. I was in love with the idea for a series. And it was really one of the most joyful projects I've ever written. I had no intention of offering it to my agent. And then when I got done writing it, I thought, well, this is really, this is great. I love this book and I don't want to do a series. I was just kind of exhausted by the thought of starting a series. I have written series before and they, I, I just get kind of burned out on them. And so I offered this one to my agent, but it was a really, and I'm in that fortunate place of being able to do that, but it was a very frank conversation with her. And I said, like, if you can sell this for an amount of money that I'm cool with, fabulous. And if not, I'm going to happily self-publish it. And so that's the way I thought about that book. But when I start thinking about a book overall, I like to decide in advance as much as I can. I really surprised myself with this one by giving it to my agent. But I'm currently writing, I've finished this memoir about moving to New Zealand, and I am not offering that to my agent. Mm. Period. She she doesn't know that yet. But it I know what I'm going to do with this. I have a plan in place. I'm going to it was it's based on a kit on Patreon. I wrote these as a collection of essays on Patreon. I'm going to kickstart it as the full book. And right, yeah, that's all thanks to you. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, for doing that to me. I'm going to kickstart it. And then I'm going to launch it into all of the places that I usually do. And having that solid plan in place feels really, really good to me. I know that this is a book I will be able to sell. I know how to sell on my own. But then Mm. there's another memoir that has been completed and finished for about a year now. And it's a recovery memoir. And Honestly, I don't know as well how to sell that one. And my agent has been helping me revise that one. And so that one I leave on her desk and she's going to handle trying to get that sold. But again, if she doesn't sell it, if she can't sell it, then I will happily indie publish this because I I like being traditionally published for different reasons that I'm sure we'll go into. Um, but I love being indie published for so many more reasons. And But I do like to have both. Mm, gosh, so much to unpack there. <laughs> okay, but we're going to come back on the series thing and the money thing and the agent thing, but we have to tackle the emotional thing, which you've just said, which was I like being traditionally published. I love being indie. So can you talk yeah. about why, like, why do you feel that way emotionally? Oh, you're you're going right for the gut here. I think it has to do <laughs> with the way I want to control things and the way I want things to go in my dream world. And when I have a book that is traditionally published, I always, always, always expect it because I think writers are just these hopeful unicorns. I expect it to rise to the top and to sell a bajillion million copies. And when it doesn't, and we're talking about a traditionally published book, there is nothing I can do. I mean, I can obviously do my own author marketing, all of the things I can do, but I can't change the cover. I can't change Uh, the categories that they have chosen for it. I can't update or change anything. And it leaves me feeling kind of frantically unsettled to the point that now I've traditionally published enough that I used to experience what a friend of mine recently called a crash after your book comes out, like two weeks later, you're like, oh, what what, what have I done? How can I help this book sell more? I don't experience that with traditional publishing anymore because as soon as it comes out, the day it comes out, I kind of kiss it goodbye forever. I cannot affect this book anymore. And that's the only healthy way I can hold on to that side of my career. But in indie publishing, 
that unicorn hope never dies. If it is not selling the way I want it to, there are things that I can do, that I can play around with, that I can change that are under my control. And for some reason, the idea of not selling a lot of books because it's my fault, because it's indie published, Mm. is much easier for me to handle than not selling a lot of books in traditional publishing where I have no control. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And psychology talks about locus of control as being a reason, like people are happier when they have some locus of control over whatever it is, whether it's choosing something in your job, which is basically what this is for us. (laughs) It is a job and being able to control stuff. Yeah, we just feel more empowered. But I love how you combine things. So I want to come back on the... um, this idea of series. So you had designed, originally you designed this Paranormal Women's series, which Mm -hmm. as we know is normally the thing that we do as indies. We write series because we know that it's a longer term game that you're going to do promotions on the first book and they'll be sell through. And we know how that works. When you decided it wasn't a series, that's when you decided to do traditional for this book. So can you talk more about this? I mean, is there any point in trying to pitch series to traditional publishing at this point? Oh, what an interesting question. I think that selling series right now to traditional publishing from what I have seen is something to be careful about. When we presented this book, when my agent shopped this book, she didn't say that uh, this has series potential. And in fact, when I was in conversation, it was bought by Grand Central Publishing Hachette. And when I was in conversation with the editor, my agent gently said, it was a conversation between the three of us. And my agent gently said, so do you see this as something that you would want another book in a series from? Because we had sold, this is just a one book deal that we were talking about. And the editor said, and this is kind of mind blowing. The editor said, well, you always have a fall off to the next book in a series. So I don't think so. I think if you'd like to pitch us something in the same world or also magical realism or the paranormal angle that you've got here, but it doesn't have to be in the same town or anything like that, we'll take that. And that to me was a very traditional publishing answer because yes, as indie publishers, we all know that the first book will get the most reads. The second book will have fall off. However, the person who goes from the second book goes to the third book and the fourth book and the fifth book. And that's where the long tail money comes in. Mm. And I'm not sure that they are thinking like that right now. What the, what I think they're doing and what I'm happy to play with them in the sandbox for is they buy books from writers and they hope that this will be the big hit. This will be the next. It's uh, It's pitched as queer practical magic meets the parent trap. And Maybe it'll, maybe it'll blow up and, (laughs) but maybe it won't. And the other thing is that when I was making this decision, this calculated decision, number one, the series idea, it was kind of falling away from me. And number two, I had a couple of very serious conversations with some people that I trust saying like, look, paranormal midlife women's fiction is a small niche and queer paranormal midlife women's fiction is not even a niche. I couldn't find anybody else writing in it. And yes, I could be the outlier and blow up if I sell, if I indie publish this, but I could also just find eight readers. And I didn't want to invest that time in creating a series that I wasn't sure I could really outright market in the best way I could possibly do. So I enjoyed the heck out of writing the whole book and then was just so happy when it sold because then I don't have to do things like covers and the stuff that I do enjoy doing, but 
they they gave they they didn't give me a, a bajillion million dollars, but they gave me enough money to basically say, yeah, I don't have to think about that book again. It was all, I'd already had it developmentally edited and copy edited. It was ready to go. So the edits that I will do with that editor are really minor because she loved the way it landed on her desk because it was ready to go. Yeah, and I think I think that's fantastic. I mean, I'm thinking about this. I've had these standalone book ideas for years now, and mm-hmm. the indie model I just can't make that work. (laughs) It's so funny because this is exactly what I was thinking around. Okay, well, maybe these are the ones that I do pitch because I know I've done some standalones and I know how hard they are to sell in the indie space, but maybe these are the ones uh, to pitch. So this is where, and obviously this is an entirely selfish conversation. People listening can just listen in to you coaching me. (laughs) To us chatting. But I think one of the things that comes up for me and comes up for a lot of indie authors, however successful they are, and I guess I almost feel that my platform and my sales may be at the point now where it's even harder. And I'm even wondering whether to pitch under another name. So the question is really, what do agents think and agents and publishers think of indie authors at at this point? And when we're pitching, should we like double down on what we've done as indie or should we just focus on the book? I love this question. I think that we need to, if we are indie published writers who have books out there, I think we need to focus on the book itself in the query letter if we're trying to get an agent say, Focus on the book itself to the exclusion of the book. We want to keep the query letter as simple as possible. And you want that agent to want the book. There is one exception. And honestly, Joanna, I would say that you would fall in this exception. If you have books that have sold tremendously well, so not like a hundred copies a month, but thousands of copies a month um, or more. Or if you have a sizable platform, that's when I would put it in the query letter. But if you are querying agents and it's just your book and you have a bunch of indie titles out there, but they're not blowing up like lightning, I think the least said, the better. And then when that agent is in love with your book and you're on a phone call with them, that's the time to say, I'm also indie published and I've had success with this and this, and I haven't had success with those three books, but I really like that series and maybe I'll revamp it. And of course, an agent who is interested in you will Google you and your books will come up. And things have changed so much now in the world. We would not have had this conversation five years ago, but they've changed so much now that agents absolutely know that their authors are making more money with their indie titles. They know that they are, and editors know this too at traditional publishing houses. They know that they need to bring their best game, their best self to this party too. They are going, if they love your book, they're going to want you. That said, if you, um, I think you had mentioned, I think there was a question in the questions that you sent, like when would you not mention a book or would you ever pitch a book that was already out there? That's something I wouldn't do. If this is a book that you've already published by yourself, you've self-published it and it's done reasonably okay, or it hasn't done well at all. I wouldn't pitch that book to an agent because what they will do is look and say like, okay, so maybe they've had a thousand sales of this book, but that's a thousand sales I can't get for the editor to whom I sell this book. So they want to see something else from you. And again, the exception to that is if you have self-published something that has absolutely blown up, agents will be knocking on your door and they will want to sell that book for you to a traditional publisher. 
Yeah, it feels like the um, some of the authors, like Hugh Howey would be the classic one, or Andy Weir with The Martian, like they were a decade ago now. Those earlier authors, when indie was more new, well, the, mm-hmm. the sort of the, in, in the Kindle store, they did get the sort of print-only deals. And some authors are still getting those, but as you say, most most indie authors who are then doing hybrid are writing new series or new books or new like it has to yeah. be new basically when you when yeah you there get- are some there are some exceptions my friend AK Mulford who now she was in New Zealand but now she lives in Australia she came out with two adult fantasies and they did so well that she was approached by agents and then she was picked up for those books and another series in a multi-million dollar deal with Harper Voyager so that and she was absolutely brand new on the scene she published one book and then I think Maybe that was TikTok, later, right? She... That was a TikTok deal. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah, she's a TikTok media perfection person. So yeah, you're right. She uh, they they had that going on. Um, but so the thing the, to I be really... fair, that's a platform deal. That yeah, <laughs> that... you're right. You're right. <laughs> she could have written that... anything. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. That is a platform thing. But the thing about agents nowadays is, like I said, they know what they're competing with. My agent knows that. I've told her flat out, I make more money every year from my self-pub titles, from my indie pub titles, than what I make from New York. So I think that they're looking and they're hungry and they're also scared. Agents are scared. Editors of traditional publishing houses are scared of how publishing is changing every year. Just like we're all frightened of a lot of things. There's the I always think that writers are perpetually like the sky is falling and the sky is never actually falling. But they're also feeling that. So does yeah. that help or did I just like confuse waters? Oh, no, no, that's good. I think the point is this <laughs> this is confusing. And every time we yeah. say, oh, this, then there'll be an example of something the opposite. So I think the point is there's yeah. always opportunity. And if, yes. you, if you're looking, but let's talk about the money because I feel yeah. like it's really important, like you said, to say agents are scared. Agents get paid a percentage of the mm-hmm. money that their author gets paid. So, and this is important to remember for people because we're so obsessed with our own business, which is as it should be. (laughs) We forget that these are business people who are trying to make their own living. And so maybe you could talk about like, how is the money different between indie and traditional for you? And also like, when is it a good deal for an agent? So agents across the board are almost always going to get 15% of what you make. If it is a foreign deal, if you're making foreign money at all, then they get 20% because 5% goes to their foreign sub rights agent. So they're making 15% of 15% of what you make and they want to make that money for you. And for the first few years of my career, obviously I wasn't indie publishing yet. All of my money was coming from New York and I had some good years with some bigger deals. And so I know that like when my agent got those checks, she was happy. My agent got a check today. She got the signing portion of that traditional deal, which means the money goes to her first. She takes out the 15% and then she sends me a direct deposit into my bank account. So how the money works in traditional publishing is you get an advance and it has been that they have been splitting this up into smaller and smaller chunks. My Both of my thrillers were parceled up into four different chunks of money. So say I got $40,000 for a book. Parceled into four chunks meant that I got $10,000 on signing the deal, $10,000 on what's called delivery and acceptance, which means 
after I'd done the edits that they wanted me to do and the editor had said, yeah, these are good, then that's another $10,000. And then I got $10,000 when the first version was published, which for me was hardcover in both cases. And then another $10,000 a year later when the paperback was published. Or if the hardcover did so badly, it never went to paperback, I would have still gotten that payment a year later. And that's difficult because that's $10,000 every once in a while, minus the 15%. This latest deal, minus taxes, you're really taking home about 45% of that. It's not that much. And But this latest deal that I just signed actually came in two payments on signing and delivery and acceptance. So I'll get those full monies this year because the book is already done and deliverable and I've already signed. So that's kind of nice. But in indie publishing, we have that gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous long tail of the money that just keeps coming in. And I am in that wonderful position that you are into of just having a large backlist. And it doesn't, it means that I can make a good amount of money every year just by continuing to sell to new readers as often as I can. I, every year on the very first episode of the year on my podcast, How Do You Write? I do this incredibly awful and awkward and just feels terrible conversation about how much money I've made the year before and where I made it. And I do it because I believe in transparency. And every year I just, it makes me feel a little bit weirder, but I know that I I should have looked these numbers up, but I, I, to have them right at the top of my head, but I think I made about $80,000 last year from books. And I want to say that 60,000 this is US dollars, 60,000 were from my backlist. And I hadn't had an, a new indie pub book out for more than a year. Mm. I haven't done anything. These are just my backlist look, books continuing to sell. I have an amazing assistant who does things like apply for book bubs for me because I would never get around to doing it, but he does those kind of things. But otherwise that money's just kind of rolling in. Whereas New York is a lot more unpredictable. Yeah. And I think that's important. It's almost the difference between spike income. So you get a big payment, but you don't necessarily know when it's coming in and big, maybe relative. <laughs> and then within yeah, the, yeah. it's a smaller amount, but it is pretty much every month. Yes. And it's more, I feel like it's more, not a salary because we're not employees, but it's more like, it is more like a salary in that it's coming in and you know how much is coming in and you can pay your mortgage with that eventually, exactly. obviously when you have enough of a backlist. Okay. So I want to come back on AJ because you've had you've been working with your agent a really long time so you've got a really good relationship with your agent but for people starting now I mean it feels like if you are unagented then new agents who might not have a big list might be a more obvious partnership because they're kind of hungry but then also people want an agent with good connections and who knows what they're doing so what are your tips on finding an agent and pitching an agent? I have so many tips. I love the whole process of pitching to agents of the query letter. It is something I actually used to coach people on. I don't do it anymore, but I have this thing called a a magic query letter, basically form because that I'm happy to give to your listeners. Because the thing about query letters is they can't stick out and they can't take too much time for the intern to read because agents for the most part are not reading the slush pile which is that inbox of query letters. It's an intern who is trained to read until the word that makes her delete the email. And they're getting (laughs) 300 a week, 400 a week. Your only job sending a query letter is to not allow her to find any word 
that makes her want to delete it. And then by the time she gets to the end of your email, she's like, oh crap, I got to ask for a partial on this because I don't hate anything. So it has to be a little bit formulaic. It has to be simple, the query letter. And the thing is about agents, exactly what you said, like you, of course, we all want that agent who is incredibly high powered and knows everybody in the industry. But for my agent, Susanna Einstein, I, uh, we started working together in 2008 and I was her second client and her first one was dead. She was representing a rather famous author's estate because she was working for, she was a sub-agent for a larger agency. And I did not know who she was. I had run out of agents to pitch that I was just desperate for. Like I had my perfect list of 10 agents that I would die to work with. And they rejected me so quickly, so quickly, or I didn't hear back from them. And then I took like maybe the next 10 who were like, they'd be okay. I could work with them. Total rejection. And just went, kept going until I was in agentquery.com or querytracker.net, which are free places you can go and look for agents who are looking for your genre. And I was now just pitching pretty blindly. What I would do is I would go to their website and I would make sure that they really were an agent and they weren't a scam and that they were representing books that looked like my book could fit in there somewhere with them. And then I would just send an email query out and I wouldn't care. And I, that's my, one of my biggest tips is don't get your heart set on an agent at all. The most brand new green agent could be the one that you work with for the next 15 years who becomes your friend. And Susanna is now, she's the head of her own agency. She is high powered. She knows everybody in the industry, but we really grew up together. Also, the thing about signing with an agent is it's not that big a deal if you, I mean, it would hurt, but if you got one and you just didn't like working with them, you can drop them. It's a business arrangement. The only time you can't do that is if you're working with an agent and they sell your book. They've sold your book forever. You can't take that book away from them. They will get 15% of that book for the rest of time eternal. But we also have to be, and you're so good about talking about this, we have to be savvy with our businesses in that uh, in this new contract that I got, I had her ask them if they would change some of the rights reversion clauses. And that was awkward because what I was asking Susanna to strike out of this contract was a line that said something like, if you ask for your rights reverted, we have the right to refuse you if there are 150 copies of your book in the warehouse. We also reserve the right to reprint your book, 150 copies or more. So what that was saying to me was that they could just say, oh, Rachel wants her rights back. Go ahead and print 150 copies, put them in the warehouse. And now well, she they don't even they don't even have to prove that to you. I mean, well, that's it a just good makes point. it difficult. Just You're not going to go look well, at it. <laughs> well, her Harper Collins had told me because I wanted a bunch of my books back from them and they had told me, well, there's still 120 copies in the warehouse. I said, fine, I'm going to buy those. And I bought them. And then they had to send them to me, which was the worst. But wh why that's difficult with Susanna is that that's me saying like, if this fails, as so many of my books have failed in tr the traditional publishing world, I will come back and I will get these. And then you won't get the 15% anymore. Once I take them back from the publishing house, and I self-publish them, she is cut out of the whole deal, which kind of makes me feel terrible as her friend. But as a business person, that's just the way it works. 
Yeah, exactly. And I've done a lot of shows on contracts. So we will just say, watch out for your contracts. And there's lots of stuff on that. And I mean, of course, you talk about this in the course in terms of being careful with the legalities. But I I just want to come back on there. You mentioned the word failed. And I also (laughs) want to mention ego, because I do feel I still feel like in the early days, people used to call indie vanity publishing and it was like oh you're so vain you want to print your own books and now I feel it's the other way around uh, because (laughs) (laughs) it's like you're so vain you want your name on a book in a bookstore and it and we but that and that's fine because we have to acknowledge the ego I feel like as writers we are just ego and self-doubt just coexist and there is a sense of ego and we should be proud of that and ambition and all of this kind of stuff Mm. but you also mentioned failure and how disappointing (laughs) and you mentioned the word crash after a publication. (laughs) This is a tough roller coaster. And in fact, some of the unhappiest authors are those whose books come out and then don't perform. So can you talk a bit about what does failure mean as a traditionally published author and how can people deal with that as well as kind of holding on to the dream of ego? Yeah, well, I'm kind of an expert in what this feels like. I love what you say about the dream of the ego. And I will always tell anyone who will listen that I wanted to be a traditionally published author because I wanted the ego boost of walking into a Barnes and Noble and seeing my book on a shelf that, and I didn't put it there. And that is an absolutely valid thing to want. It is a great thing to move toward if that is something that motivates you to keep writing and to keep getting better at your craft. And in terms of quote unquote failure or failing, when you are given this advance, it's a bet that the traditional publisher is making on you. They're saying, I bet you make this much money. If you make this much money, that'll be a good thing. We're going to make the money up that we gave to you, and we're going to make some extra money. When you do that, then you can go back to that traditional publisher and say, you know, that last book, I made you some money. Here's another book. Would you like to make some more money with me? And they say, well, sure. It's a good book. You made us money. Let's do it. But then there are the times where they give you an advance, they make a bet, and you don't make back the money. I effort so for my penguin thrillers, Stolen Things did great. It earned out. It performed the way they wanted it to. And I made royalties on it above and beyond my advance. Hush Little Baby, the next book, which is, to be very honest, my favorite book and the best book I've ever written that is currently published. I looked this up before we started chatting today. I have sold 2,500 copies of it, Mm. which is not a lot in terms of traditional land. And I cost them money. So they don't want to work with me anymore. And that's kind of, I always joke and I say that I've gotten fired from all of the publishers and it's not, I haven't gotten fired, but what that is, is that my agent goes back and says, would you like another book from Rachel? And they go, no, thanks. We're good. (laughs) We've done that. And I think in terms of my ego and my own choice to deflate ego, I laugh about it and I say it's failure. And I say, I've been fired and it kind of, covers up the sting of it a little bit because there is definitely a sting. I jokingly say that I have PTSD and the P stands for publishing. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not it's not easy and I still want to keep doing it. Yeah. 
and you all but as we've said before you also do indie so you kind yes. of have both of yeah. these things and i love that yeah. i do love that you're planning to do the kickstarter you have a patreon obviously you do courses you have your podcast you have all kinds of things and i think this is the important aspect of your business is you don't just rely on sending a book to traditional publishing and then expect that to be the only thing and th- that seems yeah. to be when people struggle is if that's the only thing they have. It feels like the secret to being an author success is having the yeah. multiple streams of income. Yeah, it it is. And it also, I love that for myself because I am the kind of person who I was born basically an entrepreneur. This is what I've always wanted to do. I think I had three businesses before I was 12 years old. They made $7 total, but I love doing this. The thing that is hard, I think, sometimes is talking to people for to they want to write this book and then they want to get an agent and they want to sell it for a bajillion million dollars and then retire to their private island and you and I both know that's not the practical reality we have to be thinking about how we can support ourselves in other ways whether that is multiple income streams on the writing side or do you have a supportive partner that can help you while you do this or do you work a full-time day job or a part-time day job while you support this desire and longing and yearning to be a writer? Because I think that the people who know that we want to write will do anything for it. We'll do anything to get it done. Mm-hmm. And knowing that that's okay. I worked for the first 10 years of my career. So for, from 2006, when I finished the book, that my first book that was sold at, to 2016, when I retired from my full-time day job. I worked both jobs, 80 to 90 to hundred hours a week. And I had to, I wasn't making enough money not to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember when you were the dispatch officer, yeah, right? Yeah, 911 dispatch. I lived in the firehouse and it was there for 48 to 72 hours at a time. And I do not miss staying up all night and napping in the firehouse and doing that. Busy. Yeah. But I mean, we do what we do. I mean, yeah, I mean, I yeah. did the first, the first five years I wrote while working my day job. And of course now I kind of see this podcast and my nonfiction, are almost the day job yeah. that support my fiction, although my fiction does reasonably well. I still like having a good multiple businesses, yeah. but I do want to ask you about New Zealand. We're almost out of time. And what's really interesting. So you and your wife moved to New Zealand from the USA, which is a really big deal. And a lot of people are lonely just wherever they are in the world without even moving. And you, mm-hmm. it looks like you've done a really good job of connecting with a community. So I actually wondered if you had any tips on making author friends in a new place or in your existing town if you haven't tried before because I do remember my early days in Brisbane when I started writing I couldn't find any author friends and authors seemed very remote and I had all these friends in my existing life but I wanted to kind of move into this new life and I just didn't know how to do it so how have you developed these relationships and any tips for people I I love this question because I think it can help anybody Mm -hmm. who is feeling like they want more of a writing community, which I think is one of the most important things that we need as writers. When we moved here, I was incredibly deliberate. I was also, I think we talked about it. I was terrified. It was the scariest thing I've ever done, selling the house and everything we owned and leaving my family and all of my friends to move around the world. So I was incredibly intentional as soon as we got here 
that I wanted to make friends. And COVID made that a lot trickier because Omicron got in right after, right after we did Omicron landed. But my goals are actually my, my, the decisions that I made, I had two of them in my mind. I wanted to be brave and I wanted to be picky. And together, those two things in terms of finding writing community, I think has worked so well for me. And I see this working with my students too. I would go to writing meetups. I would go to writing groups. There's the Romance Writers of New Zealand. I don't write romance very much anymore, if at all, but I knew that that was a place where writers would gather. So I went. I was brave because I am truly an introvert and peopling makes me want to die sometimes. <laughs> but I was brave and I went to these and I, and, and part of that bravery extended to making my mouth say the really scary words, which were, I just moved here. I'm really scared about making new friends. Would any of you like to have coffee with me? And that as a, you know, I was 49 then I'm 50 now that, that, that is not easy to say out loud. And people respond so well to that kind of honesty because they've felt that way too in the past. But then Number two is to be picky. Like I had a lot of coffee dates with a lot of amazing people and I liked them all a lot. Like I went out to coffee with nice, nice people all over the place. But I fell in love with a small group of writer friends that those were just the ones I knew. They were my people. They were my people. And for them, I was also brave. You know, I I would say, can we please hang out again? Can we do this again? And so we've been here now two years. And, and I have this group of writing friends that we go away on retreat together for four days to little houses all over New Zealand. And we just write together and it's paid off the bravery plus the pickiness. Because if you go to a meetup in your small town, there's going to be seven people. And the guy named, I don't know, George is going to be old and kind, and he's not going to be your best friend. And then there's going to be a woman who creeps you out. Just don't make friends with her. And then there will be a woman or a man. You just can just feel it. And those are the ones you need to be brave about and say, you want to go have coffee and talk about your book? I would love to talk about my book with somebody like you. Doesn't that sound terrifying? Oh, uh, I completely get it. I call it kind of friend dating. And yeah, you do have to put, yeah, it really is. And you mentioned deliberate. You do have to be deliberate. These things don't happen by accident because yeah. otherwise we just stay in with our laptops in whatever space and we're in our head and then we don't yes. have any friends. And so I think you've done an amazing job of putting yourself out there. And I know, I mean, you get migraines and I've yeah. heard you say, you, <laughs> and I, I get a lot of head pain as well from peopling, yeah. um, but yeah. we have to do this. Otherwise it is lonely. And yeah, so I wanted to encourage people that way, but we're out of time. So just tell people a bit more about the course, how to publish your book in today's market. And also you mentioned a query letter form, which you offered. So you have to talk about that too. Oh, absolutely. So the course is how to publish in today's market. And it will always be today's market because I will always keep it updated, but it's the difference between traditional and indie publishing. And it is, I think it's 22 modules and it goes through everything you need to know about traditional publishing and how to write a query letter, how to write a synopsis, how to format things. And then it goes into everything you need to know for indie publishing, or at least as much as I could fit into one course. It talks a little bit about marketing, but not too much. There is a little bit about it, but it talks about finding cover designers and how to find a good editor, all of those things. I do not talk about AI because I just send everybody to you. And thanks to you, I am 
obsessed with GPT-4 and I was just using it earlier to help me figure out this Venice book that I've been trying to figure out for years. It's Ooh. helping me with that. It kind Ooh. of make, it kind of feels like your, Whatever that your book shadows book. I think that's the one. That's the one I've been, and ChatGPT is helping me. So that course is available over at rachelheron.com slash publish and it'll be there. And the magic query letter your listeners can get for free just by going to rachelheron.com slash magic. And it's got all of the instructions you need in terms of formatting and what to say and how to say it and how to make sure that that intern cannot delete your query letter and they will ask you for that partial or that full. Mm. Uh, So also (laughs) just tell people about your podcast as well. Oh yeah, of course. It's called How Do You Write? I'm about 370 episodes in and I am obsessed with process because I am always looking for the magic bullet that will finally make writing easier for me. And it doesn't exist, but I really love to talk about, to talk with writers about it. You have been on the show and yeah. How do you write available everywhere? Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Rachel. That was great. Thanks, Joe. What a joy. So I hope you found the discussion with Rachel interesting and that it gives you an insight into some of the things to consider when you're thinking about publishing. So next Monday, I'm talking about writing the shadow with Michael Brent Collings. And once again, I'd love you to be part of my shadow survey for my next nonfiction book about writing from the shadow side. Just go to jfpen.com forward slash shadow survey. Links in the show notes. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.